This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Cardiac Imaging Indications. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. In 1946, American physicist Edward Mills Purcell and Swiss-American physicist Felix Bloch discovered nuclear magnetic resonance, or NMR. This technology provided a new, non-invasive way to determine structure of materials. NMR may sound familiar to you because it's the basis for magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI. At first, NMR was primarily used to study chemical structure of substances. That's why American chemist Paul Christian Lauterbur was familiar with the technology. In 1971, Lauterbur had the idea to harness NMR technology for medical use. He would steal into the chemistry lab at night to change the NMR device settings and perform his experiments. The discoveries of both NMR and MRI were both considered pinnacles of scientific advancement. Purcell and Bloch were awarded the 1952 Nobel Prize in Physics for their works on MMR, and Lauterbur, along with Peter Mansfield, won the 2003 Nobel Prize in Medicine for their work developing MRI. Early MRIs were impractical to image areas of the body, such as the heart or lungs, due to motion. That was overcome with the use of ECG gating, breath holding, and advancements in imaging. Scientists started to perform cardiac MRIs, or CMRs, in the 1980s, and today CMR can be used to diagnose a variety of cardiac conditions, and the field of cardiac imaging is continually expanding. 
Today's MedNet 21 webcast is on cardiac imaging indications, where we will be exploring two of the newer and less commonly used cardiac imaging modalities, CMR, as you might have guessed, and cardiac computed tomography. Today, I've invited two of Ohio State University Ross Hart Hospital's cardiologists specializing in cardiac imaging to share their knowledge. Dr. Thura Harfi and Carolina Zariba are associate professors of cardiovascular medicine and fellowship trained not only in cardiology, but also cardiac imaging and are leaders of their field in cardiac CT and MRI. Thura, Carolina, welcome to MedNet. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for having us. Well, Thura, are cardiac CTs and MRIs mostly ordered now by cardiologists or are more generalists like primary care or emergency medicine or hospitalists using these modalities? Well, currently, cardiac CTs are ordered by a lot of different specialties. Primary care physicians are frequent or uh, frequently ordering those, or, those tests and also hospitalists. Mm -hmm. And, of course, cardiologists are becoming even more and more frequent users of those scans. They really can be ordered by any special specialty. Emergency mm -hmm. room physicians order them frequently for patients who present to the emergency room with chest pain. Mm -hmm. So they are not restricted, but the frequent users are primary care physicians, hospitals, and cardiologists. Perfect. Now, Carolina, is cardiac imaging read typically by cardiologists or radiology? Yeah, that's a great question, and it depends a little bit on the imaging modality. Um, when we think about um, really the mainstay of cardiology, meaning echocardiography, that's typically read by cardiologists um, at most institutions. But when we think about the other modalities, such as nuclear imaging, CT, and cardiac MRI, it can be a nice collaboration between cardiology and radiology, um, where um, each um, uh, physician is typically at that point trained in uh, imaging, whether they're in radiology or in uh, cardiology. Um, here at OSU, we predominantly have cardiology with some collaboration with radiology for our imaging modalities. Okay, perfect. Now, if you haven't already, please check out our website at go.osu mednet21. You can find all 120 of our webcasts there along with the slides and the instructions to receive your CME credit and your American Board of Internal Medicine Maintenance of Certification points. You can also listen to our program Spike Podcasts. Search for OSU MedNet 21 on your podcast app. If you have any questions about today's program, you can send them to us using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom of the webcast. Now let's get started. Thera? Thank you. So my talk today is titled as Uses of Cardiac CT in the Primary Care Settings. And uh, all right. And um, the the talk uh, will, is outlined as really two parts. The first part will be uh, focused mainly mainly about coronary artery calcification, and we'll talk about how we how the scan is done, and we'll discuss the role of coronary artery calcification in the 2018 cholesterol treatment guideline. Additionally, we'll talk about mainly what are the adva advantages of using calcium. Um, scan and primary prevention compared to using just risk calculators. The second part of the talk will be mainly focused about coronary CT angiography as a test and it also again explain how, how the scan is done and also uh, dive into what are the appropriate use of coronary CT angiography in the most recent guideline of 2021, multi-society chest pain guidelines. And at the end I will offer a few slides about kind of personal uh, approach to how to approach the very, very uh, complex um, issue of which test to order in for patient with chest pain. So let's start by coronary artery calcification. I think it's important to understand that how coronary artery calcification actually develops. It's, um, it's really the uh, hallmark of atherosclerosis is the atheroma, which really um, formed by focal retention of lipoprotein circulating in the blood. They kind of sneak under the endothelial layer, go into the subintima. By there being there, that will stimulate the monocyte, which is in the blood. 
they kind of creep chasing after those lipoprotein, get into the subintimal layer, and they change into a macrophage, and they start actually ingesting those lipoprotein. Once they start ingesting lipoprotein, they will secrete in cytokines. Those cytokines will stimulate differentiation of other cells, such as myocyte or parasite, and then they become osteoblast cell, and they start the inflammatory cascade. And then those osteoblasts will start deposit um, small um, spots of microcalcifications, and with time those microcalcifications merge with each other to form the macrocalcification. And it is that calcium deposit, the big um, microscopic um, deposit of calcium that we detect by using the CT scan. So how do we perform calcium scan? Calcium scan really flat simply is just what we call a dry chest CT, a chest CT of the chest without contrast with very few modification to optimize the use of coronary arteries in the scan. And those modifications are EKG gating. So it's a dry scan of the chest with the patient lying flat, as seen in the table to the, on the picture shown on the slide to the right. And the patient will lie still. The patient need to be cooperative and then have to be able to hold his breath, his or her breath, for a few seconds, between three and six seconds. And the total time of the patient spent in the scanner is between five to 10 minutes. Um, there is very minimal radiation and uh, relatively um, a very affordable test. Um, it's important there is no, to, to know that for calcium scan, there is no IV line need to be placed, no beta blocker used to control the heart rate, no IV contrast used, no aura contrast used, no nitroglycerin used, and really the patient doesn't have to be fat. So literally you can get your calcium score on your way on getting your morning coffee. Now, the, uh, so what do we get? We get a scan that's similar to those pictures shown, shown on the side. On the top row, you can see the uh, first image to the far left is a uh, calcium score, and that's scan that's showing no evidence of coronary calcification. Calcium will look like white, white, bright, similar to bone. So white spot in the area where coronary arteries are coursing is not normal, indicated. The second picture in the middle of the top row indicates there's a couple of spots of whiteness in the scan indicating early ether, um, calcification. So with that visual assessment, we called moderate calcification. And then the third image on the top to the right is um, severe calcification because we see multiple spots very bright involving multiple coronary arteries. So this is what we call the visual assessment. Of course, using some special software, we can basically quantify that uh, calcium and provide a number, which we call the calcium score. And the bottom row, um, you, you can see that uh, there is also, those are regular scans. Those are not really um, cal calcium dedicated. They are just regular chest C CT. And you can see that if you know where to look for coronary arteries, you will see that there is, on the circled area, there is, um, to the left, there, are, there is no white spot. There is no calcification. And to the right bottom picture, you see a heavy area of calcification involving the coronary artery. So you really can see coronary artery calcification in any scan. You don't have to have dedicated uh, calcium scan, but you cannot quantify it uh, accurately, as accurately as, um, as you do with a dedicated calcium scan. So what's the, what's the importance of calcium scan? Because calcium scan is a very strong and independent um, of, and predictor of all-cause mortality. Um, calcium scan uh, coronary artery calcification presence predicted all-cause mortality beyond traditional risk factor, which means it's really calcium scan is more powerful and more important. So, for example, the risk of mortality is higher in patients who have calcium score of more than 400 and then in somebody who has zero calcium score 
and more than three risk factors. So that means it's better to have no coronary calcification and have a few risk factors than the other way around. Um, and that's because calcium can um, really indicate the lifelong exposure of the patient to risk factor, whether that's genetic, environment, or, um, or basically disease status, instead of a single shot of a blood pressure measurement or, or high cholesterol or lipid panel. So how do we use it? Once we get the calcium scan, so what is its role in, in, in the guideline? How do we apply the knowledge? So the first, the guidelines say that we have to calculate the 10-year risk of um, atherosclerotic disease using the calculator, which is from the guideline, the ASCC um, uh, calculator, pooled cohort equation. And then you, you end up with um, a range of um, a number. And depending on that uh, number, you can be classified into low risk if your risk of having a heart attack or dying from heart attack or stroke in 10 years, less than 5%. Between 5 to 7.5 is what we call borderline risk. Between 7.5 and 20% is intermediate risk. And uh, more than 20% is high risk. So the role of coronary calcification really falls into the uh, category between 5 and 20%. So the guideline recommend that any patient with a risk score more than 7.5 is reasonable to be started on statin therapy or at least start what we call the risk discussion. And that's where really calcium uh, score is helpful. So the way it works is you start talking with the patient, you're getting their information that you need to calculate their risk, and then if they fall between borderline and intermediate risk, then you, you start what we call the statin risk discussion. You basically talk to the patient about their risk, you talk to them about their preferences, you tell them what's the potential side effect, and then patient value. Some patients do not prefer to take a medicine for, their, for long term, just for prevention, versus others will say, no, I, I'm fine, give me wherever it takes, I want to be maximally protected. So patient value are important and need to be taken into consideration. So after this discussion, if the patient is unclear, or the patient or provider is unclear about whether statin therapy is justifiable, then you can order calcium score to help inform the discussion further. So then that's really a great use for calcium score. And then if the calcium score is zero, then usually you can postpone statin therapy and focus on improving lifestyle and, uh, and risk factor. And if the calcium score is more than 100 or above the 75th percentile for patient age, race, and gender, then statin therapy is strongly recommended. And there's great data suggesting that patient benefit um, of this category benefit from statin therapy. If there is mild coronary artery calcification, which is usually defined between 1 and 9, 99, Again, favor statin therapy, especially if the patient is above the age of 55. So really, any coronary calcification is a reasonable cause to be started on statin therapy and not forgetting the importance of lifestyle modification and op optimizing risk factors. So, so, so why, why don't we just depend on the risk calculator? Why, don't, why do we need the calcium score in addition to what I just mentioned? And the reason behind that, because the calculator is not perfect. There is significant overestimation and underestimation if you only depend on the risk calculator. For example, it's very heavily weighted on the age. So um, when they did the study, they found that actually 50% of those patients in the intermediate group will be reclassified to the appropriate risk when you use the calcium score. The other advantage is 
Calcium score is a very powerful motivator for both the patient and the provider. They found that actually providers are two to three times more likely to order preventive medicine, statin, lipid lower medication, antihypertensive ones when they know their patient calcium score is elevated. And the same thing for the patient. I've had personally showing the scan for a lot of my patients and just to see that next visit they are very motivated, they have improved a lot in their healthy lifestyle and even quit smoking for example. So and that's shown by the data, twofold increase in the, in the exercise and dietary changes are associated with optimized health. The other thing is, as, which I already touched on, is the reason calcium score performs so strongly, it's really a lifelong um, predictor, a lifelong representation of the risk factor, adverse risk factor of the patient has. If the patient, for example, smoked 20 years ago for 10 years, that doesn't go away. And then that will be manifested versus a single shot of blood pressure or one time lipid panel doesn't have that, that power in it. And lastly, but really very importantly too, is calcium score of zero is a very powerful negative risk predictor, which means patients who have zero calcium at a very low risk. And that's really useful so that we don't dedicate extra very precious resources and medication and costs toward addressing uh, patients who are unlikely to develop cardiovascular disease. So we'll, we'll, in this case, I'm going to hopefully try to um, elucidate how the use of calcium score can be applied in a clinical setting. So we have a 59-year-old man who has no history of hypertension or diabetes. However, his brother had a, a percutaneous coronary intervention for 99% stenosis for his coronary arteries in the age of 49. So that's early uh, family disease. And his father also had coronary disease at young, at young age. He has healthy two sisters, and they both are reported to have high cholesterol. His BMI is he's in the mild obesity range. His blood pressure is acceptable. His lipid panel, as shown on the slide, with a total cholesterol mildly elevated to 06, LDL elevated at 126, triglyceride and HDL are within acceptable range, being 96 and 61, respect, respectively. He's asymptomatic. He exercises um, uh, weekly uh, for 20 minutes on the treadmill and. Um, um, and he's here just concerned because uh, his brother had a heart attack. Um, he's concerned and he's not sure though about whether he won't take medications. So, so you talk to him, you plug the numbers in the calculator and you end up telling him that his risk for his 10 year, his risk for having a heart attack or dying from heart attack or stroke in the next 10 years is 7.6%. Well, according to the guideline, this patient need to be statin therapy. As we mentioned that the cutoff is 7.5%. But he already told, told us that he doesn't like taking risk, and he is relatively on the young age, doesn't have really any risk factor. So uh, is that enough to convince him to take a pill every day for the rest of his life? I'm not sure. He's not sure. So then that's really good. So then next you can get a calcium score, and turns out to, uh, this patient have elevated calcium score, 150, which put him at the 85th percentile for his age and race and gender. And that in itself will be very powerful. So now the, the, the question is not, hey, take, take your pill because you're at risk. The question, you do have atherosclerosis, you do have uh, the disease, and now you need to be treated for it. It's, it's the changes from a hypothetical situation to an actual real, and that's part of the personalized medicine that the power of calcium score apply here. So I'm gonna switch gear um, right now and talk about coronary CT angiography. And um, although coronary CT angiography and calcium score are related, but they really are, have different, different uses and application. Coronary CT angiography as shown in the two, two picture, this is a, a picture of 
uh, CTA, for we call CTA for short, and you can see that on the left uh, um, picture, you can see early in the word circle, is an area of atherosclerotic plaque, calcified plaque, showing some mild, um, some uh, luminal narrowing in the coronary artery. This is, that's, uh, that artery is the left anterior descending artery. On the picture to the um, right is another uh, artery. It's, this is the left circumflex artery showing like normal appearance. You can see the lumen very wide and very open, and you can feel assured that there is no significant luminal stenosis. So the advantage of coronary CTA is it has excellent spatial resolution, one to two millimeter, and there's a new scanners now actually go to 0.2 millimeter, and, and um, there's excellent visualization of all the cardiac chamber. The spatial resolution is superb. Um, and also you can see actually not only the uh, stenosis degree, you can see with the, the characteristic of the plaque. Is it calcified or is it non-calcified, which have some prognostic importance as well. And this is a close-up view on this picture about how the coronary artery looked like on coronary CT angiography. So how we do it, um, it's really similar. The same machine that does calcium score usually can do coronary CT angiography, but here you can see the patient lying on the table. Uh, it's connected to, all, uh, to an IV injector. Uh, you can see on the top, there is a blue screen there with an EKG of the patient, so the patient have to be connected to an EKG monitor. Um, here we have to control the heart rate, so we frequently use a beta blocker uh, before the test to control the heart rate to arrange to improve image quality. Uh, the patient needs to be MPO just because the contrast sometimes can cause nausea for some patient, and the patient needs to be cooperative. Uh, so uncooperative or unconscious patient is not a good candidate for a calcium score or for any uh, CT scan for that regard. Um, um, we use iodinated contrast, that's a must, and that's a limited factor for patients who have um, re kidney insufficiencies. And um, the total time patient in the scan is really about half an hour, give or take, but really the actual scan take about um, 10 seconds. Radiation is higher than what's in the calcium score, but definitely um, in general this is going down, down with the new scanner and very variable from institution to institution, but in general the radiation is lower than the radiation the patient gets from doing uh, a nuclear stress testing. So, so in the early time of coronary CT when this kind of start to come, really the whole focus of research was to show whether uh, it can be performed as equally as um, a heart catheterization. And the heart catheter, invasive coronary angiography, also known heart catheter, is the gold standard still to this day for diagnosed coronary artery disease. And we did not have any other way, non-invasively, to get the anatomical evaluation of coronary. Um, stress testing in all various forms do not directly detect anatomical atherosclerosis, but rather they detect the late effect of, uh, of atherosclerosis, which is ischemia, which is caused by imbalance. And also very important, which is frequently missed by a lot of physicians and non-physicians alike, is that stress tests are only positive in only in advanced atherosclerosis, only late in the disease where stress test becomes abnormal, which means when you have plaque and the plaque has developed and now the plaque has caused a significant stenosis of 50 to 70 percent and above narrowing, only that time then stress test turns abnormal or positive. So by default, stress tests are not designed to detect early disease. So in the early time, coronary CTA had a lot of, of challenge to prove itself as, as equivalent or at least as good as a, a heart catheterization, and that has now been settled. So in a meta-analysis 2011 that included about 3,700 patients, that showed that the actual sensitivity compared to CAT is 98% and the specificity of 82% with a negative predictive value of 99%. And that's why coronary CTA is a really excellent modality 
to rule out uh, coronary artery disease in patients with low and intermediate risk. So once we pass that test to prove that CTA actually works and to detect disease, then next is, does it really change outcomes? So the first trial was the PROMISE trial, which is a very um, well-conducted trial, 10,000 uh, patients uh, funded by the NIH. And the goal was to see, was well, there a difference if we apply coronary CTA versus stress testing? And the trial, without going into the all the detail, was negative, which means that uh, there was no difference in outcome between the group who had stress test as a modality for evaluation versus coronary CT angiography. But the trial has a lot of limitation. There was very limited um, event. And also, more importantly, they, there was no intervention. Like, there was no, the trial did not include treatment R for patients who had coronary CT angiography and had non-obstructive disease, which is really where the power of CTA uh, falls, is in detecting an early non-obstructive disease. So the, the, some said this trial was a, a tie, others said CTA is an option, which is good, equivalent to a stress test, and, but really it did not answer the question because it really did not mandate treatment for those who have non-obstructive disease. And at that time, CTA was not that very um, uh, commonly used. But what's really uh, important from that trial is really the reanalysis, which had a huge insight to the pathogenesis of coronary atherosclerosis. So when they looked at those in that trial and patient who had heart attack, the trial was for two years. So when they looked back at the patient who had the heart attack or who died from heart disease, they found that about 57% of those patients had actually a normal stress test and 54 of them have non-obstructive coronary disease. So what that means is that the majority of patients who end up having a negative outcome, a heart attack or dying, they actually do not have obstructive coronary disease. They have the normal stress test or they have mild non-obstructive disease on CTA. And that means that really the importance of non-obstructive disease detection should be emphasized and should be highlighted. Um, all right. So th that's really easy to understand once you appreciate that Coronary atherosclerosis is a diffuse multifocal disease. Here in those two pictures, you can see on the left side of the, of, of the screen, you see an, a, a picture of um, a heart cath showing the right coronary artery. And you can see that the artery as a, in the black uh, color, it has a lot of areas of narrowing and wasting. So the coronary artery disease is a diffuse disease. It's not like there's a spot with 70% narrowing. If you fix it, then everything is back to normal. It's a diffuse disease. The same thing on the picture to the right side of the panel. You see that a CTA showing a lot of coronary calcification across the vessel in multiple spots as well. So it's a diffuse nature. So going after only an area that is actually the more stenosis, it doesn't make sense because any of those mild um, narrowing can rupture at any time and cause acute heart attack or a sudden cardiac death. So the, the treatment, focal treatment for atherosclerosis disease have never shown to prevent heart attack or change patient outcome, but rather um, a therapy that works diffusely by medication or lifestyle usually is effective. And finally, we get to the really the trial that really um, proved that, and which is the Scott Heart trial, which is, was conducted similarly very effectively and randomized 4,000 patients between CTA and stress testing. And they found in this cohort, they definitely treated non-obstructive disease with medical therapy that is proven to be effective. And the trial concluded that there was 41% relative risk reduction in myocardial infarction over a period of five years. 
And because of the trial and the further data, now the guidelines have changed. We really actually in the United States are the latest to endorse, to accept this change. The uh, British and the United Kingdom were the first, and then Europe, and finally 2021, um, we, the United States finally caught up. So for the primary care physician for, to, to assess chest pain stable, the first question is really what's the patient risk and then whether the patient have coronary artery disease. Once you know those questions, then the algorithm can really be easily applied. So for those who have a stable chest pain you're seeing in the clinic or in the hospital, um, they, if they don't have, if they have history of coronary disease, then they really the best approach is to do stress testing. There is, at this time, the coronary CT angiography has limited role for evaluation of patients with stable chest pain with history of coronary disease. Um, if the patient does not have coronary artery disease and they are in the intermediate risk, you really, the guidelines say, you can use either modality equally. You can order coronary CT angiogram or you can order a stress test. And they gave, however, high level of evidence for coronary CT because of data suggesting that it can improve outcomes. However, both tests are now appropriate. And that's a huge change. Just a few years ago, CTA was kind of a weird test, uh, hard to be approved by. So having it there recommended strongly by the guideline really opened the door to, uh, to use of this um, modality appropriately. Now, although they are recommended equally, uh, but there are factors that favor some tests over the other. Um, for example, young age is a good reason to order CTA. Um, local exper ex expertise in the modality is very important, and the guideline leave that really um, emphasize that strongly about the use of local So If the hospital is very um, experienced in nuclear, do it, or echo, do that, or CT, do that. So consider that as a factor. Uh, patient has to have good renal function. Uh, if you are concerned about the size of the aorta, some people have aortic aneurysm. CTA is a great, you can hit two birds in one, uh, two bird, one stone. If you are concerned in very young patient who have coronary anomalies, rare causes of chest pain, that's all CTA is actually gold standard for that. Um, and if you already had done stress tests and the stress test came kind of borderline or inconclusive, then CTA is um, um, the best choice for that. On the other hand, there are factors that favor stress testing, advanced age, more than, more than um, 70 years old. So I think that's a typo in the age. The age should be more than 70 years old. Um, sorry about that. Um, there should be um, good local experience in the stress test. Of course, if you have a limitation of renal function or if the patient is known to have severe coronary artery calcification, that really limits the accuracy of coronary CTA to tell you what degree of stenosis. So it's heavy calcification is not great for assessment of luminal stenosis with CTA. And of course, if you already had done CTA and you had some kind of uh, image artifact or inconclusive test, then stress testing should be the next step. So this, here I'm offer my kind of personal advice about how to navigate this field of stress testing versus CTA. So those are a few kind of practical comments. So always, if you exercise a pharmacological, always favor exercise. We get a lot of functional physiological data when we do exercise down with pharmacological. Um, if the patient have reduced ejection fraction, then that's a really big deal and that's really need f full evaluation. I think cardiology referral, or even directly referred to invasive coronary angiogram cath. CTA also could be considered when the chances of coronary artery disease is considered low. If the patient have prior coronary disease or bypass, then I think referral to cardiology or stress testing is probably the best approach. If the patient have left bundle or ventricular pace rhythm, then CTA or pharmacological spec. 
We don't do exercise for the patient with um, love bundle um, just because of difficulty in interpreting the images. If the patient have uncontrolled hypertension, we really don't want to um, to do exercise or dobutamine because that will further increase their blood pressure and sometimes pharmacological nuclear is the best approach. Of course, I mean, we should every attempt need to be done to control their blood pressure. Um, if the patient had already had stress tests but uh, negative or negative stress tests but the patient continued to have atypical chest pain, then CTA is really good to kind of um, um, put prove whether the patient does or does not have uh, coronary atherosclerosis. Um, again, if it's inconclusive or indeterminate stress tests, nuclear stress, CTA is a, is a great way instead of jumping right to the cath. Uh, if you have young or low-risk patient, um, you really consider don't do any testing. And they, the guidelines strongly emphasize um, that point. We need to reserve testing to people, to patients who really benefit from it. But if the patient low risk, as I said, CTA or exercise ECG is a very good modality because it can rule out disease with a high negative predictive value, especially CTA. Um, if the patient have less than 65 years old, no history of chest pain, excuse me, no history of coronary disease, coming with chest pain, please remember CTA is your friend because of the ability to detect non-obstructive disease. The patient might get the CTA, okay, you have a little bit of plaque, but nothing that could explain the chest pain. Well, that's great. The chest pain is not really cardiac, but now we find the disease that hopefully if we intervene now, could protect you down the road from having a heart attack. If the patient is asymptomatic, do not order stress test. Do not order stress test or coronary CT angiogram. That is really class three indication that's contraindicated. But if you want a further risk stratify, calcium score, can be considered inappropriate patient, as we mentioned in the slides. Um, another patient, if patients have high 10-year risk score but refusing statin, calcium score could be really a good motivator to convince that your hesitant patient to actually try a different statin, different formulation, different doses, different um, um, frequency of medication. And this, the other way around, if you have a patient who have low risk of atherosclerosis, but really has a lot of risk enhancers, strong family history, everybody in the family have heart attack at their 50s, then really you don't want to wait until that patient hit their 45 or 50 years old. You can use calcium score in this patient to detect early disease and hopefully change and uh, prevent um, uh, an outcome that is un unfavorable. So a uh, few take-home message, um, I think that it's important to remember that calcium score is a very useful tool to detect early atherosclerosis, especially in patients who are intermediate risk, who are hesitant or not sure about taking statin, and especially who are in the elderly whose score will be high just because of their age, although they are really healthy and low risk, so that you really accurately classify them as are uh, for their risk and also for people who are young but have a lot of risk factors and or family history of premature coronary disease. And also remember CTA is now appropriate first step for evaluation of stable chest pain in the outpatient settings in patients who do not have history of coronary disease or and less than 65 years old. And also stress testing is also appropriate but for those who have history of coronary disease, stress testing is more favorable than CTA because of the chance of heavy calcification. Um, exercise stress test is always more favorable than pharmacological. And please remember now, non-obstructive coronary disease is not a benign disease and need to be treated. And coronary calcification is coronary artery disease um, and should be addressed uh, appropriately. And 
Also, data suggests that the use of CTA is associated with 41% reduction in adverse cardiovascular outcome when compared to stress testing in patients with stable chest pain in the outpatient settings. And thank you very much for listening. Well, thank you so much, Thor. That was extremely helpful. I really, really appreciated your summary at the end and the table and really kind of um, putting it all together and synthesizing it for primary care physician like myself. Now, I know you mentioned that any chest CT can be used to detect coronary calcification. Does that mean that if a patient already has a CT for another reason, can we use that and go back and calculate their calcium score? Not exactly. I mean, we can, we can use any um, chest CT to detect coronary artery calcification, but quantifying it um, with a score is really right now uh, accurately limited only for dedicated calcium scans. Mm, mm -hmm. uh, now, you can definitely semi-quantitatively assess the degree of coronary artery calcification on non-dedicated chest CT as, by describing them as mild or moderate or severe, depending on some kind of objective metric. For example, how many vessels is involved? How mm -hmm. much of each vessel is involved? Uh, do you have more than uh, how dense it is? So you end up with mild, moderate, or severe classification. And there is a lot of data suggesting that this semi-qualitative assessment is correlated very well with the calcium score. Mm -hmm. So in my report, I always make an extra effort to provide some assessment about degree. I'll say multi-vessel coronary or mild or moderate or severe, uh, even when I don't necessarily do calcium score. Okay, well that's great to know. Now for the second half of our program, Dr. Carolina Zariba will be discussing cardiac MRI. Carolina? Great, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm really excited to speak about one of really my favorite uh, topics, which is cardiac uh, magnetic resonance. Um, I'll briefly go through some of the techniques that we use um, in cardiac MR imaging, um, touch on the guidelines, and really focus on the various indications. So just a brief few notes about um, cardiac magnetic resonance. As you know, um, we utilize a magnetic field um, and radio frequency waves to create um, these images with high special resolution. We can image really from any angle and any imaging plane. Um, we often in cardiac MRI use contracts, but not always. Um, more novel gadolinium agents can be used in patients with chronic kidney disease. Um, and, and one other important point is many devices are now MR conditional. So what does that mean? Thinking about your pacemakers and defibrillators that patients have, these patients often can undergo CMR in specific environments and under specific conditions. And remember that um, really, if you have a question, is MRI the right test for your patient, please contact your local CMR lab and um, ask the, the physician that's, um, that's reading there for advice. We are always happy to help and, and um, answer these questions um, for you. Uh, so speaking uh, specifically about the various techniques that we use, um, we have cine imaging, which are essentially movies of the heart. Um, we have blood flow quantification, looking at valvular um, evaluation often. We have stress testing and geography. Um, as well as, very importantly, tissue characterization. So we here talk about um, various mapping techniques, which I'll get into, and late gadolinium enhancement imaging. Cine imaging is really the gold standard for structure and function in the heart. Um, it is, um, the beauty of it is it actually still is very accurate without the need for ECG gating and breath holding. So if you have someone in an abnormal heart rhythm, um, an anarrhythmia, or just a potentially frequent um, a ventricular or atrial ectopy, we still are able to get really high quality images, as well as those who cannot breath hold. 
um, we are um, able to have really detailed analysis of motion, strain, and as I mentioned, really look at the heart from any angle. Here in these um, video, in these videos um, noted here, on the top panel you have some of the um, imaging planes we typically obtain with the long axis and short axis images, um, and in the bottom you have some pathology. So on the um, bottom left you'll see a patient with coronary artery disease and an inferior um, wall motion abnormality. In the second panel from the left bottom, you have a patient with really wall motion abnormalities of the right ventricle and impressive ones with um, aneurysms. And there, um, this is a patient with arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy. And the bottom two um, panels on the right really demonstrate some hypertrophy of various um, kinds, which is associated with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, when we look at uh, other sequences. One of the sequences we often um, perform is face contract imaging. And what we're looking at here essentially is um, assessment that actually quantifies blood flow. So we're talking about velocity, the amount of forward flow, backwards flow. We love to use this for valvular evaluation, which I'll touch more in a minute, as well as shunts. So we're talking about um, cardiac um, uh, congenital heart disease. Talking about myocardial perfusion imaging, so we're here thinking about stress testing. So um, you can do stress tests with cardiac MRI. We do them often. Uh, the beauty of it is we now have not just qualitative evaluation, as you can see in this, uh, in this slide with stress perfusion images demonstrating a um, subendocardial rather prominent perfusion defect in the septum. Um, but you can also do quantitative evaluation where we can actually get myocardial blood flow data. Angiography is another technique, as I mentioned, that we use. So um, we can do a full uh, vascular evaluation that can be really a variety of vessel. Of course, most commonly we do this for aortic dilation. Um, the important part is we can do this typically even without gadolinium contrast. So no IV for the patient, they go through their usual MR safety screening and get a full evaluation of their aorta without radiation or, or contrast. Um, and again, typically in aortic dilation cases. When we um, talk about tissue characterization, really this is the key of cardiac MRI. Um, it allows us to look at fibrosis, which is really one of the only modalities that allows us to do that. Um, the two main techniques, and really the mainstay, is late gadolinium enhancement imaging. What we're looking at is essentially replacement fibrosis, so scar, focal scar in the heart. Um, we do this by looking at relative differences uh, between this bright scar um, and darker normal myocardium. As you can see in the um, image, there is a thin um, myocardial sort of bright stripe in the septum in a patient with dilated cardiomyopathy. Um, on the um, really complementary um, aspect is T1 mapping. So we talked about how LGE, late gallium enhancement, shows us replacement fibrosis. This really focus on inter focuses on interstitial fibrosis, um, and where we can actually measure the direct signal and calculate something called an extracellular volume fraction, which looks at measures the actual extracellular space. One other um, tissue characteristic um, that we often look at and is very helpful is myocardial edema inflammation. And we utilize various techniques, but the most common technique um, um, and actually developed here at Ohio State University is T2 mapping. Um, and that has been histologically validated to demonstrate to us the water content in the myocardium. And there's really many applications of this, not just myocardial infarction, but of course myocarditis, and as well as inflammatory cardiomyopathy. So think of your autoimmune diseases or sarcoidosis, as well as stress-induced cardiomyopathy and transplant injection and many others. Um, those are really the key um, sequences that we utilize. Um, 
I would love to go through guidelines, but I can't um, do this in the minimal time we have because we have so many. We have a lot of position statements, um, guidelines, and appropriate use criteria, and know that um, cardiac MRI it has multiple class one indications. I'm pointing you to this excellent website, which has resources not just uh, of these position statements and guidelines, but also um, multiple uh, resources for uh, learning about cardiac MRI. So let's delve right into these uh, common cardiac uh, indications for CMR. Chest pain, of course, is one of the most common ones. Um, we can help with evaluation of coronary artery disease, myocarditis, um, thinking about pericarditis, and of course, chest pain can also be um, related to stress-induced um, uh, Takotsubo uh, presentation as well. When we think of arrhythmias, um, you know, we certainly think often of the tachyarrhythmias, so faster heart rates or ectopy, ventricular, atrial ectopy. Um, the uh, beauty of MRI, it is often a great test to order for this because of picking up structure abnormalities. And we're not, we're not just talking about heart pumping function, which can be obtained with other modalities, but we're talking about um, actual abnormalities, and often this means tissue characterization. So. Um, we're uh, looking at fibrosis burden, um, of course, evaluating for patterns of cardiomyopathy. And, and note that um, those patients with um, bradyarrhythmia, slower heart rates, AV blocks, are often also referred for cardiac MRI. We try to look particularly for infiltrative diseases in those patients. When we are thinking about a reduced ejection fraction, heart failure presentation, we certainly can help with whether the, define whether this is ischemic or non-ischemic whether more looking at an infiltrative or arrhythmogenic, such as ARVC or um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy presentation. And know that, as I'll delve into more later, we can look at valvular disease. Um, we can evaluate um, cardiac masses, um, of course, congenital heart disease, a mainstay um, of uh, cardiac MRI, and, and as well as uh, more novel indications in cardio-oncology. Delving right into coronary artery disease, uh, cardiac MR is really great for um, comprehensive uh, evaluation of coronary disease from the standpoint of not just structure and function, but then proceeding with stress testing, whether that is adenosine or gadenosine dibutamine, um, and then after ad administration of contrast, um, providing that scar infarct burden, whether it's ischemic or non-ischemic. We can identify the ischemic myocardium. Um, and we ha there are multiple head-to-head -head trials that really endorse um, stress CMR as one of the most accurate modalities when evaluating these patients in terms of a stress, per stress uh, test perspective. So here is a uh, patient that uh, re recently presented to our cardiac MRI lab, 67-year-old male with coronary artery disease, status post bypass surgery, who's having chest pain. As you can see on the qualitative evaluation on the top um, Row, you'll see perfu myocardial perfusion images after adenosine. And as you will see, there is a subendocardial dark rim perfusion um, defect in the lateral wall. Um, the qualitative part allows you to see that the quantitative uh, numbers, which um, are, show, are shown on the um, myocardial uh, blood flow information on the bottom left, provide you with a um, numerical aspect of that as well. And uh, top right hand, we have the LGE, so looking at scar, and what you notice, there really isn't any significant infarct in that lateral wall. Again, talking about viability, which I'll get into next. This patient ended up having um, disease on one of their grafts um, supplying that lateral wall. Um, so I mentioned viability. This is a, a really helpful thing in terms of coronary disease that um, 
really helps guide revascularization. So we can identify infarctions. As you can see on the top right um, image, you pointed by the blue arrow, you have a very thin subendocardial infarction as compared to pointed by the red arrow where you have a transmural uh, uh, infarction really involving um, the whole um, myocardium in that segment. The extent of this myocardial damage is inversely related to the likelihood of functional recovery with whatever method of revascularization, whether that's stenting or bypass surgery. So again, really helpful um, what is going to recover and what is not. Moving along to um, another um, uh, common indication is myocarditis. So cardiac MR is really a key diagnostic tool. We have established imaging criteria called the updated Lake Louise criteria for this not only help in diagnosis, but um, also in prognostication. This is um, a 20-year-old patient of mine from years ago uh, who presented with chest pain, had a troponin elevation. And as you can see in the middle colorful images of T2 mapping, the brighter orange areas are all increased water content, so edema inflammation. And on the uh, right image, LGE, that is all enhancement, gadolinium enhancement um, from the uh, uh, myocarditis, act acute myocarditis. Another um, uh, indication that we often uh, speak about is, of course, cardiomyopathy evaluation. And really, the spectrum here is important to note because you can we provide such an accurate evaluation of uh, structure and function ranging from, of course, severe dilation and dysfunction to really only mild changes, which are also highly prognostic and important to catch in an early stage. So thinking about those familial patients um, will help um, diagnose earlier and pick this up earlier. Um, we can, of course, distinguish between ischemic and non-ischemic based on patterns of late gallium enhancement imaging, as can be seen on the bottom left with a rather dilated heart where it's a combined picture. We have, one, we have um, a dilated cardiomyopathy along with significant infarct. Um, and then multiple studies now have shown that fibrosis, so the amount of scar in the heart in this particular entity and many others, um, are really highly prognostic of events and specifically ventricular arrhythmias and sudden cardiac death. When we think of another um, important um, evaluator um, for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is cardiac MR stands highly um, valuable. Not only do we visualize the hypertrophy, the abnormalities that can come with it, but also the fibrosis burden. And that is a key prognostic um, indicator. So the top images you see stills of cine image, the top row, excuse me, you see stills of cine images. The bottom, that is all late gallium enhancement imaging and that bright is all the scar that you see um, in these, um, in these uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patients. Um, this is uh, so key that it has actually made it into our sudden cardiac death and ventricular arrhythmia guidelines, um, the use of cardiac MR uh, LGE imaging. Um, touching briefly on infiltrative cardiomyopathies, um, we're able to um, evaluate amyloidosis um, with looking both at AL and um, ATTR amyloidosis. We utilize our tissue imaging um, characteristics, both for diagnosis and prognosis. Um, and um, sarcoidosis is, again, another um, disease that is often underdiagnosed um, and is cardiac involvement is certainly associated with poor outcomes. And we not only can look at the enhancement, the late gallium enhancement that we see with this modality, but also the inflammation, the active inflammation. And we can actually follow um, response to therapy by looking at this T2 mapping and inflammation aspect um, in this disease state. 
And again, um, late gallium enhancement imaging has also made it to the um, uh, to our guidelines for management um, of ventricular arrhythmias in patients with sarcoidosis. Um, briefly on valvular disease, um, we of course know echo is a mainstay of imaging of the valves, but CMR can really enhance its assessment. We can look at regurgitant stenotic lesions, the prosthetic valves. Um, we look at not just the anatomy, but also the, the flow um, and velocity quantification and look at um, associated pathology. So if you think of a patient with a bicuspid aortic valve, we can right then and there look at the aortopathy associated with it and others. Here's another um, video just to showcase what we're looking at. Um, in the top left, you'll see um, patient with a, a significantly thickened aortic valve, aortic stenosis. We can look at that in cross-section identify the morphology, um, evaluate the, um, uh, the planimetry, the um, or stenotic orifice, and we can do this phase contrast imaging, which is in the bottom um, panels, just demonstrating flow, the velocity of the flow, the amount of forward and regurgitant flow, and again, we can calculate all of this. On the right side, we have uh, an example of mitral regurgitation with again a pretty impressive um, uh, jet um, going towards the left atrium. There are many other indications that I'd love to go through um, but are limited by time. So pericardial disease is another one where we look at pericarditis, constriction, of course congenital heart disease as I mentioned, aortic imaging, vascular assessment, and importantly cardio-oncology. So not just looking at masses or thrombi but also monitoring cardiotoxicity um, from all the novel um, and established chemotherapeutic agents. So I'd like to leave you with uh, these four patients. Um, these are uh, these uh, four uh, four chamber cines um, demonstrate all patients with hypertrophy and varying degrees of cardiac function. Really, the question is, how do you treat each patient, and do you treat them the same, or do you treat them differently? So I'd like to demonstrate that they're all pretty different patients. Um, the top left panel, you'll see a patient with extensive LGE uh, enhancement um, consistent with cardiac amyloidosis. On the top right panel, you'll see a rather rare disease, Anderson-Farber disease, which we can diagnose with T1 mapping. On the bottom left, you'll see a patient with um, apical uh, hypertrophy and scar in the apex uh, consistent with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And really, on the bottom right, you have a patient with hypertension and infarct in the apex who also happens to have a thrombus. So again, precise and accurate diagnosis is key, and MRI can help with that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you both so much. Um, Carolina, that was uh, wonderful and um, really opened my eyes to all the different uses of MRI that I wasn't familiar with before. Uh, now, you know, for some types of imaging modality, body habitus and things like breast tissue can get in the way of a good image. Uh, are there anal analogous factors that can impact the use of cardiac MRI? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I would say um, the um, key really aspect of cardiac MRI, as we've mentioned, is really being able to image from really any angle. So we can see through uh, really any body habitus um, and we can really image um, patients with various sequences and, of course, as I mentioned, from various angles. Um, certainly, some 
things cause some challenges, um, but many of those we have overcome. So if we think of uh, patients with devices, uh, ICDs or pacemakers, what we end up um, uh, um, doing is we use novel sequences that have been developed by our physicists and engineers to really overcome that, and we're able mm -hmm. to provide really great diagnostic and prognostic images even in those patients. So. Short answer, very few limitations, so almost none. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great. That's really, really wonderful news. Um, now, I think we just have time for one more question. So, Thura, I was wondering, uh, in terms of coronary calcium scoring, uh, if you have initially someone with a zero score or a very low score, does it make sense to do a follow-up scan in a few years and see if it's progressed? Like, how, what, what's, what would be the time frame for an interval scan? Yeah, that, no, thank you. That's a really insightful and uh, great question. So the, uh, the, the frequency of doing calcium score is not yet determined or universally accepted. Um, so there's, we can think of it of two categories. Those who have already known have coronary artery calcium, there is really very little to no reason to repeat scanning at this point because mm -hmm. the calcium score will likely would increase um, because of healing from statin therapy or because mm. of age. Mm -hmm. um, but for those who have no coronary artery calcification or calcium score of zero, there is need to determine how frequently we can scan them. And so that, that's come to term with conversion rate. How quickly can somebody who goes from zero calcium to a positive calcium? And that determined determined by how healthy at baseline they are. So if somebody, for example, very low risk factors, no hypertension, no diabetes, no smoking, uh, data suggests that they will probably stay negative zero calcium score for probably seven years, between mm -hmm. five or 10 years mm -hmm. in general, versus somebody who has significant risk factor, for example, diabetes, hypertension, or hyperlipidemia, they might convert to positive calcium, uh, to positive calcification in three years. So in general, it depends on their baseline risk. I would say roughly for people who are on the low risk, I think it take maybe scan them in five to seven years versus somebody on the higher risk. I would scan them between two to four years. So mm -hmm. it's, we're talking years here, not months. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's really helpful. Yeah. Well, we're going to finish up today's program with a final key point from each presenter. Thera? Um, thank you. So I would say that for calcium score, please do not forget that it is an amazing tool to uh, empower both the patient and the provider. It does a lot of good things for the patient to motivate them to uh, improve their lifestyle, diet, exercise to healthy um, form of it and also maybe um, become more adherent to um, uh, risk reduction uh, medical therapy. And uh, especially useful for those who are intermediate risk or those who are elderly healthy or young, too many risk factors. For the coronary CT angiogram, I would say that it, um, the power of coronary CT angiography compared to stress testing is in the detection of non-obstructive coronary artery disease. It's the disease that need to be treated before it causing symptoms. So it is very important that we take every opportunity to detect early disease and not necessarily wait uh, until it causes a heart attack or a sudden cardiac death. Great point. And Carolina? Uh, I think the key really point about cardiac MRI is really knowing its um, comprehensive nature and ability to be utilized in almost any cardiac indication. So think about not just your structure and function, but really key is the tissue characterization aspect meaning you can almost have a non-invasive biopsy of the heart due to looking at both fibrosis, um, myocardial 
uh, edema, inflammation, and of course, um, infiltrative diseases as well. So, but remember, we don't just scan cardiomyopathies. We can um, look at valvular disease and many, many other indications. So, um, hopefully, you understand that this can really be used in many, many cardiac indications. Thank you. Great. I think that this was a wonderful program. Thank you all for joining us. And for our audience, don't forget to receive your CME credit for watching by logging onto our website, ccme.osu.edu, and taking that post-test. This is our last program for the year of 2023. I wish you all a happy new year. Please join us again next year, 2024. My first guest of the year will be Dr. Cynthia Shellhaas to discuss maternal morbidity and mortality. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.